Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, it's Patriots Day in the greater Boston area, and that, of course, means commemorations of the earliest stages of the American Revolution. Uh, it means uh, an 11 a.m. Red Sox game, parentheses, they somehow scored five runs on two hits uh, in the early going. Uh, and it also most significantly, or at least most noticeably over the years, has come to mean uh, the time of the Boston Marathon. But of course, two years ago, uh, the Boston Marathon became something very different, um, or at least it was it was shadowed by something very, very different. Uh, the bombings uh, that killed people, maimed people, uh, and left the city in a state of shock. So last year uh, was the first year kind of back. This year is, is, is maybe a chance to sort of have an, a sense of what the new normal is like. Uh, so joining us uh, now, as he has in the past, Alex Ashlock is joining us, WBUR producer, uh, joining us from the Boston Marathon finishing line. Alex, are you there? I am. So before we get to results, um, maybe you can just say what kind of day this has been. Obviously, it's a rainy day, maybe a rainy day when the chalk writing of Boston strong on the road is washing out in a few places. But, mm-hmm. but how does the city feel? The city feels like it's moving on from the Boston Marathon bombings. There was a moment of silence on the anniversary of the bombings on April 15th, and it was a much quieter event than the tribute that was held on the one-year anniversary of the bombings. And I think that's happening in the race today as well. The bombings will always be a part of the Boston Marathon, but today is about the marathon itself and the actual event. So I think people are always thinking about the bombings. It will always be in their minds. But people and the city in general are trying to move on from the bombings, and they're focusing on this race today, the 119th running of the Boston Marathon. So uh, we have winners across the finish line already. Tell us about the winners. In the women's race, that finished first. The women start earlier than the men. There was a thrilling finish on Boylston Street in downtown Boston, similar to many of the women's finishes over the last four or five years. Caroline Rodich of Kenya came in first place today, and she just barely edged out Marie Bababa of Ethiopia. She won by less than a second. The two women battled in the final meters of the race down Boylston Street, the crowd cheering them on, and Rodich of Kenya ended up the victor in the uh, women's race today. A couple of uh, notes on that race. American Shalane Flanagan, who was a bright hope for the U.S. She was hoping to become the first American woman to win the open race since 1985. She finished ninth, but American Desiree Linden finished fourth in the race today. She actually finished second in 2011, uh, losing a very close race. I mentioned the very close races in the women's competition. Des Linden of the United States finished fourth today, said she was very pleased with her effort. And uh, on the men's side, we have uh, an Ethiopian winner, correct? That's correct. Luisa de Sisa of Ethiopia won the men's race. He really broke away and won by about 25 or 30 seconds. He's interesting because this was his second Boston Marathon victory. We talked about the bombings here at the beginning, and he won the 2013 race, uh, the race 
uh, during which the bombings happened. And after that race was over, he returned his winner's medal to the city of Boston in a gesture of uh, solidarity with the victims and the survivors and the city after that happened. So he's a very popular champion here in Boston. And again, he won his second Boston Marathon. Last year's winner, Meb Kaflesky, the American who broke the long drought of American winners here in Boston. He was the first American winner in more than 30 years. He finished eighth today. An American named Dathan Ritzenheim was the seventh place finisher in the men's Boston Marathon today. So, um, Alex Ashlock, uh, obviously one of the things that is going to characterize the, the Boston Marathon uh, for, for now and for some of the ensuing years, we don't know for how long, is a heightened sense of security. And some of that obviously is, is really out there and is visible. Uh, but one of the things that the police say is that, that they're also going to have a lot of people in the background, people who are not so obvious. Um, in general, how, how visible, how obvious is the, the extra post-2013 security today? Well, security is a lot different, and you can see it and feel it. There are many more police officers than there used to be. I've been covering the Boston Marathon since 1998, and until last year, I had never seen security like this. There are checkpoints all over the city. If you're carrying a bag and you're on your way in any direction, either in or out of downtown Boston, you're going to have that bag searched, and that never used to happen. So the increased security is very visible. As you said, there's also an unseen uh, layer of security that uh, has been put in place since the marathon bombings, helicopters overhead. You can see those and hear those. But uh, I think the increased security is maybe another thing that's always going to be a part of the marathon now, in addition just to the fact that people will be thinking about the bombings. There probably will be increased security uh, in the coming years as well. Yeah, so they, uh, I guess, sort of informally asked people not to bring things like backpacks, coolers, and and coolers uh, if they could avoid it. But uh, some people, it was just a request, not a ban, uh, and it just means that you're more likely to be searched, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I guess I would say today you don't really need a cooler out here because it's pretty chilly. In fact, the running conditions... Really, uh, not so much for the elite runners because they're just used to running uh, in just about anything. But for for just the regular back of the Packers today, I think it's probably a pretty miserable day to be out there running into the wind 26 miles with raindrops uh, occasionally as well. So not a great day to run 26 miles to run a marathon here in Boston. Uh, Alex Ashlock, a WBUR producer, is joining us right now from the Boston Marathon. Um, you know, this this is a year that is unlike any of the other years and will be unlike any of the other years in one way anyway, and that is there's also the shadow uh, of the sentencing of one of the two marathon bombers. Uh, he's uh, been found guilty in court. He's uh, in jail awaiting a sentencing. And this has occasioned kind of a, of a debate. I don't know how obvious the debate is in, in coffee shops or around town, but but we read and we hear anyway that Boston and Massachusetts is struggling between its outrage over the bombings and kind of, you know, various traditions in Boston and in Massachusetts which militate against the death penalty. I, I, I wouldn't expect people standing on the uh, along the finish line at the marathon to be talking about it, but how far away is it as a conversation? I think, again, just like the bombings themselves, what's happening in the federal courthouse in Boston is very much on the minds of people. And as you said, the death penalty debate is very much on the minds of people uh, in Boston. 
uh, Martin Richard, the family of Martin Richard, yeah. the eight-year-old boy who was killed in the Boston Marathon bombings, released a statement last week to the Boston Globe saying they want to take the death penalty off the table in this case. Uh, and so that's also added to the conversation about the death penalty. Uh, polls in Massachusetts show people against the death penalty, and this is a state that doesn't have the death penalty, but uh, federal prosecutors are seeking the death penalty against Jahar Sanaya, the, uh, the lone bomber who's still, uh, the lone suspected or convicted bomber now who is still alive. His brother was killed in a shootout with police a few days after the bombings. So the debate about the death penalty is very much alive here. The trial's been very uh, obviously heavily covered, so people are, are thinking about that. And with that statement from the Richard family, it's only added to that conversation. It remains to be seen whether uh, the death penalty will be removed from the case, but as of now, it's still being sought by federal prosecutors, and the sentencing phase of the trial is due to start tomorrow, one day after the marathon. Alex, um, I know this day, the, the, the marathon, Patriots Day, in, in Boston is something that uh, over the years has meant a lot to you. And this, this may sound like kind of a stupid question. I apologize if it is. Is, to, is today fun? Is it, is it, do you have a sense of fun back? Or, or is the caution, uh, a couple obviously with a very gloomy day weather-wise, but is, yeah. is the sort of the sense of caution, the reminder that the, the Tsarnaev case is not over yet really, all those things, does that still suck some of the joy out of this? I have to say for me the marathon is just always this great celebration. The weather's put a little bit of a damper on it today, but it's just always a great day. It just For me personally, the marathon bombings had a big impact on me, and it's something I think about all the time. But it's just great to see the race continue. We saw it continue last year, very emotional uh, last year because it was an American winter for the first time in 31 years. But it was just a great day to see the city come together and to see all the cities that host the race come together and the fans lining the course, cheering on the runners. And you saw that, or you are seeing that uh, again today. So uh, I think about the bombings uh, just quite often I think about the trial but um, I think that the marathon continues and it's been here for more than a hundred years and there was one year where where there was a horrible event uh, and it's always going to be a part of the race but uh, I think we're moving on a bit and this is the second year and there will be a third year and a fourth year and hopefully something like that will never happen again and this will take this day will remain the celebration it was always supposed to be. Alex Ashlock, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a busy day for you. WBUR producer Alex Ashlock joining us from the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what's going to happen for the rest of the show today. First of all, I should tell you, a little bit later we'll be doing a tiny bit of fundraising uh, here on the show. Hope you will support us. And when you pledge during the Colin McEnroe show, uh, it gets noticed. You know, it's good for us. So if you like the show, uh, this is a good way to like it. Um, I'll also tell you we have a segment coming up on the Yukon Foundation, which is the subject of some public debate here in Connecticut in the General Assembly. Uh, and, and then we will do that actual bit of fundraising. Following that, just to cheer you up a little bit, because it is a rainy day and there are some pretty serious things to talk about. We'll also talk about the fact that the new Star Wars movie is a mere seven months away. <laughs> 
<laughs> but there was a Star Wars celebration in, in Anaheim uh, over the weekend, and a lot of things are trickling out now about sort of how this incredibly cherished found uh, uh, cherished franchise is going to uh, morph and mutate and change and provide more everlasting delight to people like Tucker Ives and, and Patrick Scahill uh, in the years ahead. So anyway, we'll be talking to somebody who covered the big convention and who can give us the latest news. For example, and here's just a teaser. The Empire is no longer going to be called The Empire, and we'll tell you what it's going to be called from now on later in the show today. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with Derek Slap from the Yukon Foundation. Welcome back to the Colin McEnroe Show on this rainy Monday. Uh, in fact, we've got uh, an all-star team in here today. Kyone Wolf is uh, off today, so the amazing Lydia Brown is uh, on the board for us today. Tucker Ives is producing the scramble. Sydney Lara is on the phone. And we have the Yo-Yo Ma of Twitter, Greg Hill, with us. Uh, if, you want, if you're following us on Twitter, it's WNPR Colin. That's how you follow us. And uh, Greg is tweeting, and you may tweet back at him as we go along. We'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on any of these segments. As I say, it'll be all about Star Wars at the end, but right Right now, uh, we're going to talk about the Yukon Foundation, which is the subject of some debate uh, in the General Assembly, has been for a while. Uh, joining us now is Derek Slapp, Associate Vice President for External Relations uh, at the Yukon Foundation. Welcome, uh, Derek Slapp. Thanks, Colin. Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well. Oh, we're doing just fine. So just for starters, explain what the Yukon Foundation is. Sure. Um, so the Yukon Foundation is essentially the fundraising uh, arm of the of the University of Connecticut. I mean, we're responsible for uh, raising uh, funds and uh, through private donations and, and gifts, um, commitments to support the uh, the mission of the university. And it's been uh, going very well lately. Last year, we hit uh, an all-time high, raising about $81 million. Uh, and a lot of that goes towards uh, scholarships and fellowships and um, academic programs and things like that. So it's it's really meant to um, and this is something we maybe we'll get into later in the interview, but uh, to um, supplement state support, not supplant it. And that's something that's very important for our donors, right? They want to know that they're, they're helping UConn, um, you know, do amazing things and soar in the rankings and that type of thing. So is the foundation part of UConn or completely freestanding and separate from UConn? That's, yeah, a great question. I probably should have addressed it right off right off the top of the bat. It is a uh, private, nonprofit, 501c3. Uh, we have our own building. Um, and so we are not a part of government, and we're not a part of the university. On the other hand, you, there's a sense of coordination. For example, one of the things that's going on right now is that the uh, that UConn is actually um, dissolving its relationship with its own alumni association and supposedly consolidating uh, alumni activities um, under the umbrella of the UConn Foundation. So to me, when I hear something like that, it doesn't sound like it's a, they're completely separate entities. If the Board of Trustees can make decisions like that, saying, yeah, we're going to basically not have the alumni association anymore, the foundation is going to do that. Right. So they can't tell the foundation that, for instance, that, you know, we're going to handle alumni engagement activities. The, the foundation has an independent board of directors. And so the board and, you know, made up of you know, eight subcommittees and 50 people and experts in finance and business. And so, you know, they'll decide and they ultimately did with regards to the uh, alumni um, engagement efforts, that this is something that makes sense. It's a model that other universities are going to. The Alumni Association um, is also a, uh, you know, a 501c3, right, nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So essentially we're just going from two to one that will handle 
you know, both fundraising and the alumni engagement stuff. Now, uh, Derek Slap, there's been a, a movement uh, in uh, the legislature and elsewhere, and, and a lot of it has come from people in, like me in the press uh, to sort of say, well, what we don't really know very much about the foundation. They aren't FOIable uh, the way a state agency would be. Uh, there were bills in the legislature. They, they appear not to have legs right now, although uh, Senator Fasano is saying I think that the whole thing isn't quite over yet. Um, but explain why it is that we wouldn't want to know who's giving money to the Yukon Foundation. Yeah, well, we don't accept, I should say, the premise that we are not transparent. I mean, we are more transparent than any other nonprofit in the state of Connecticut. And I think a lot of people um, who say the foundation's not transparent, and I don't blame them, but I'm saying, haven't been on our website, like, haven't seen the annual report, haven't seen the uh, the 990 form, which is a you know a government um, IRS form, uh, haven't seen all the information that we do make available um, about where the money goes, how much money goes to scholarships, how much goes to research support, and, you know, uh, fellowships, et cetera. Um, fundamentally, our donors are concerned about I would say two things. Um, one, that they're private um, financial decisions, right, about, you know, where to donate their money um, can remain confidential or private, right? Some of them are very happy to have their names on the side of a building or something, but many more actually don't, right, for a number of reasons. I'm happy to go into those if, if you want. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. Maybe somebody is donating money to cancer research and, um, you know, doesn't want a whole bunch of questions about whether they or a family member are, you know, afflicted with cancer or something. So, so one, they're concerned about donor anonymity. And the other thing we hear from donors is that they're, they, it's very important that the foundation remains independent of state government because it, it goes back to they want, they want their money to supplement state funding, not just zero sum, where the state decides, especially in this budget environment, okay, we're going to cut, let's say, $10,000 from scholarships. We'll just get it from the donor instead, right? Who's going to be inspired to give if they know – that's what's happening. So, and I think that's part of the reason why it's not just affecting the Yukon Foundation. At the public hearings, there were two of them before two different committees. Uh, there were foundations from all across the state of Connecticut that came and testified and said, guys, this is going to have really large unintended consequences, and it's going to undermine our ability to raise money for scholarships and fellowships and other things. So that's why we believe this is really a solution in search of a problem. See, I'm not sure that I, well, I'll tell you what the problem is in just a second, but I'm not sure I understand that, what you just said, because I, I don't understand why it would make any difference knowing who the donors were. In other words, if 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 the hypothetical model we've got here is that the state's going to say, oh, all right, so this amount of money is going to be forthcoming from private donors through the Yukon Foundation, so let's cut back on what we're going to do. That's sort of what I understand you, you understood you to say anyway. Why, why would it matter whether we knew the names of the donors? In other words, if X million dollars is coming from the Yukon Foundation and, and the state sees that uh, as a reason to cut back on the kind of support it's given, why would knowing the names of the donors make a difference at all right two, two different issues but and so one is kind of the, just the overall independence of these foundations and the other one is donor anonymity and you know we hear from donors right i mean you know who say you know what 
our privacy for, about how we make our own financial decisions and where we give our private money, right? That we should we should be able to have some privacy when it comes uh, to that, just like we would donating donating to any other nonprofit. I suspect, including NPR. I mean, as you guys have this campaign going on right now, if everyone knew that any amount of money I I give is going to could be in the front page of the current or whatever, and you know maybe there are, and and we know there are many. Uh, you know, very, um, uh, you know, kind of basic, understandable reasons why people, uh, you know, don't want that publicized. And so we hear from donors that say this is a big concern, especially when they know, like, or, or we know, I should say, that, you know, our donors would be treated differently than if they give to any other nonprofit in the state of Connecticut. So we're, we're worried because this, we hear from donors that they're worried. Okay, I totally get that part. I just didn't get the part about it would somehow or other have kind of a seesaw uh, effect on state funding. Because it seems to me that state funding is going to be, if it's going to be affected by the existence of the Yukon Foundation, it's going to be affected that way, whether or not the donors are, are public or private. They may have perfectly good reasons for wanting to be private, as you say, right. but I don't see how it affects state funding of Yukon scholarships or any other part of the Yukon. Well, budget. I mean, I think considering the, the budget climate, it, it, it makes right, the, our ability to raise private funds even more important. We have 10,000 students on the campus right now who receive some type of financial aid. And we know, one, we can't rely on increases, certainly, in this budget climate for financial aid from the state. And we know, you know, the plans that UConn has to increase its student body, right? Those things can't happen unless we raise more dollars. So I think that's ultimately why you had Republicans and Democrats across both of these committees say, you know what, it's, this is risky, especially now. So... Um I want to come back to the thing that you said, because I think the question of whether it's a solution without a problem. So, And I'll tell you what I think the problem is and why, in fact, I do think that UConn and the UConn Foundation are different from, say, Connecticut Public Broadcasting. I'm looking up your donation, Derek. I see you got the potholders. Uh, we just totally outed you now. Right, uh, right. But um, but no, here's the, here's the difference is that unlike UConn, unlike UConn, we're not in a position to give out billions of dollars in state contracts. So we know that at the level of UConn, UConn, not the UConn Foundation, but UConn, billions of dollars of state monies flow into UConn. Bonded state monies go into UConn for big, big projects. And there are a lot of people who obviously want those projects. And so one of the things that we'd be concerned about, particularly given the modern history of the state of Connecticut, is that there might be people who are arranging to curry the favor of UConn in order to get those contracts through a method other than just basic competitive bidding. We also know that UConn is exempt from some of the kinds uh, of, of contract controls that apply to other state agencies. So I would totally agree with you if we didn't already have a state ethics code and we didn't have these procedures in place of the firewall between the University Selection Committee for Contracts and the Foundation. In fact, if a contractor discloses in the process that they made a gift, um, they're immediately disqualified. And then after the bid process is, is complete, that is open to the public where essentially members of the public or the press can go and look at it and say, huh, d- did somebody who should not have gotten the bid, got, you know, did they receive the bid? Um, so, I mean, th- those things are transparent. And, you know, we don't have accusations right now of, of any, uh, certainly of any malfeasance. There's this well-publicized case. I know you, you probably know about it, about a donor who I think was upset about a certain decision that the athletic department made regarding a football coach, right? This was a few years <laughs> yes, back. I do remember Mr. Burton, yes. R- right, right. And um, so he he raised, you know, kind of a stink because he wasn't 
pleased that he, he wasn't having the influence that he wanted. I mean, so that's actually an example of the system working exactly how it should, um, right, of him not being able to, to curry favor. Yeah, I, I mean, all I would say about this is, and, and uh, I mean, obviously, this is just a conversation that will go on for a long time, is, you know, is somebody with your journalism background, you you know that as a journalist, I want to see the list because, uh, you know, let's say that uh, it's, it's not even me that wants to see the list. Let's say it's John Dankosky who wants to see the list because he knows that, you know, my cousin Marty has a construction company. Or what if, you know, Marty McEnroe's construction gets uh, gets the uh, the big contract and it turns out that I and some of the other McEnroe family we're giving to the Yukon Foundation. Maybe that's a question worth asking. You know, are we finding other ways in, in, to curry favor? And I'm not suggesting that anything like anything like that has ever right. happened. I'm but what I'm saying is it seems structurally like it's a recipe for it happening someday when there aren't people as supremely ethical as you and everybody else at the Yukon Foundation right now and everybody over on the contracting side of the university itself. If, God forbid, Sith Lords should take over this process, right. you know, that now you've got a process that's opaque on one level and then has a lot of money coming through yeah, and, on the other side. And we're not asking, I hear you, we're not asking people to trust us. And I say, don't worry, trust us. I mean, that's why there are the, you know, the, the ethics codes in place. There is a separate state statute for foundations that support state agencies. So we, we have to have an independent audit. We have to submit that audit report to the uh, state auditors. If, if any um, uh, inaccuracy is found, they can investigate. The attorney general can investigate. I mean, I can kind of bore you with all the different, you know, um, accounts and uh, accountability and control measures that exist, but so we're, yeah, we're not we're not asking anybody to accept it on faith. I think what you saw lawmakers do in the both um, the committees is say we have to kind of balance what you're saying, and I know they care about transparency with also the unintended consequence of essentially you know turning away millions of dollars of donations that we need now more than ever. Um, Derek Slap, always great to talk to you. You could never bore me, by the way. You would <laughs> never, ever bore me with anything, Derek Slap. Thank you so much for joining us. Associate Vice President for External Relations at the Yukon Foundation. Thanks for explaining all that to us. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. All right. In just a second, we're going to take a break. I have to tell you what's going to happen now. Just once again, I want to remind you, we're going to have a little bit of fundraising here. Uh, and, and when we do fundraise during the Colin McEnroe Show, if you're listening, you like the show, you're thinking about making a donation, <laughs> now I sound like exactly the kind of person I was worried about five minutes ago on the air. But you're thinking about making a donation. Maybe you make it now because, in fact, it sort of shows up on our report card a little bit. I mean, just a little bit. Just a little bit shows up on our report card. So it's, it's always good for us. I mean, if like, nobody calls, it's obviously not good for us. Let's, put it, let's look at it that way. If nobody pledged anything in this next fundraising break, that wouldn't be good for us. So uh, I hope you do uh, do that. And then when we come back, we're going to – I mean, you may, it may seem to you a little early to be getting excited about Star Wars. And that all that means is that you have a life, all right? But there are people who don't, and they're very excited right now. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. After Should I just talk up to the tone? I should just talk up to the tone. We'll come back after this. All right, we're back. And uh, we don't have Kion Wolf today, but running the board is the amazing Lydia Brown. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Star Wars now. So we've got the Yo-Yo Ma of the Twitter uh, available, Greg Hill. I hope you will tweet uh, your own Star Wars questions and concerns uh, at WNPR Colin. I know it's 420, so not only are you excited about Star Wars, but you're also high. Uh, it may make tweeting difficult. I don't really know. Tucker Ives is the producer uh, of the show today, and uh, Sydney Laura's on phones. Uh, joining us right now 
uh, is Brian Bishop. But before Brian even says a word, Lydia, I think we got to get him in the mood. So let's let's hear a little clip. My father has it. I have it. My sister has it. You have that power, too. Uh, it, of course, is uh, whatever it is that Hartford has. Uh, part, of the, part of the new Star Wars movie is set in Hartford, Connecticut. I, I can reveal that now. Joining us now is uh, Brian Bishop, senior reporter for The Verge. You've been at the Star Wars celebration in Anaheim, correct? Uh, hey, everybody. Yes, I have. I uh, got back yesterday. It was uh, four days of uh, rather intense Star Wars nerdery. And <laughs> it was a good time. Yeah. So let's talk about the most intense thing that happened to you, which was that you got to uh, get in some kind of Star Wars X-Wing simulator. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, they always have these kind of uh, you know, interesting gimmicks at hit shows like this. And there's a new Star Wars game called Battlefront that EA is putting out. So to promote that, they had this thing called the X-Wing Experience, which was kind of like a cockpit mock-up of an X-Wing fighter. So you'd stand in line and put on the, the outfit and the helmet and sit, you know, get inside this cockpit that they would slide shut. Um, and they would play what's the trailer for this game, essentially, right? And you had a little control stick, so you could kind of move back and forth like you were controlling the X-Wing yourself. And they were reprojecting the back of the ship and this you know, R2 unit droid back there. And they filmed the whole thing. So after it was done, they cut you into the trailer. So... Uh, I now have footage, you know, footage of myself flying an X-wing fighter, which all my friends' kids apparently love. That's what I keep hearing. So, um, and I, I bet you you were a lot more excited uh, when that was happening than you even sound right now, Brian Bishop. Uh, uh, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. It, I'm not going to lie; it was it, it was pretty cool. It was it was a pretty neat experience. Uh, I got the video back. It's uh, it's also very very it's very funny, but it's uh, it was a good time. So meanwhile, there's we're so excited about those things. It's hard not to get it you know, wrapped up in enthusiasm. There, there's this sort of cat and mouse thing that's going on now, right? Where little tiny specks of information about the new movie that's coming out in December, Star Wars: The Force Awakens, are being dribbled out. We know certain things now, and of course, we know that some of the old cast members that people love so much are, are coming back. Was was there sort of a big takeaway from Anaheim? Was there something that Star Wars fans learned about this this new movie in December that they had not known before? I mean, the biggest thing, and this is going to be drilling out a little bit into, like, the, the hardcore stuff, but everybody assumed that the, the sandy planet that you saw in the trailers thus far was Tatooine's has been in, you know, pretty much every Star Wars movie since. Uh, it turns out that it was not Tatooine. It's this new planet called Jakku, which is a bit of a piece of throwaway information that you don't care about, except for, you know, in the new trailer, there's this damn Star Destroyer, right? So, like, what happened there? Was there some battle we don't know about? As it turns out, there was. That Battlefront game I mentioned earlier, uh, during the briefings for that project, they said, hey, guess what? There's this battle after Return of the Jedi called the Battle of Jakku, where, you know, after, you know, after all the stuff that you saw in that movie, the Rebel Alliance fought the Empire one more time, and there's had this big fight, and so there's all this, you know, uh, this stuff laying around this planet because of it, and that battle is something you can play in this upcoming game. So uh, in terms of, like, the corporate strategy, I was really shocked that they – they're really kind of tying in everything from the books to the games to the movies, and they're kind of using all of it to promote this next wave of Star Wars hype. And it's kind of, from this point forward, I think, going to consume popular culture in a huge way. 
Um, uh, in just a moment, we're going to uh, also talk to uh, Alexandra Petri, who's uh, Alexandra Petri, who's uh, been writing about this as well. But before we do that, okay, I have to sort of go to a certain place, and I, I, I may be making a bunch of assumptions that that you'll dispute, <laughs> uh, Brian Bishop. But my sense among even among star, core Star Wars fans is that there's always been this tension uh, uh, between the original trio of movies, which is basically four, five, uh, uh, and six, and then the the movies that followed, which were essentially one, two and three. And there are all kinds of things about this, right? That those early movies that started in 1977 or whatever, they they were made with the available technology, which is very different from the technology that's available now. And it's maybe a little warmer, a little more organic, maybe even a little bit more real looking in certain ways. And and that that coming along after it, this this trio of movies that that begins the series, um, you know, was more, a little bit more CG, a little bit more computer stuff. You've got Jar Jar Binks, who apparently almost brought Western civilization to its knees because people just didn't <laughs> like him very much. You know, that there is, in terms of the love levels, there is this kind of disparity between the first three movies and then the three movies, that the prequel movies that followed. And, and that, that people are sort of poised. They're trying to figure out how they're going to feel about these last three movies, right? That, that there, there's a little bit of a break of trust that went on. And can J.J. Abrams and Disney, the new creators of this stuff, repair that fissure? I, I don't know. How, how true does that, any of that seem based on the, the time you spend in Anaheim? I mean, 100% correct. And they're actually being very, very careful to rebuild that trust brick by brick. Uh, you know, you've seen like, you know, all the all the shots that have been shown off so far have been have felt like the original trilogy. Right. Um, they made a very big point that Aiden said, you know, we wanted to make everything feel realistic. We wanted to use practical effects. We wanted to use actual models. They were showing off those models in the exhibit. Uh, the biggest surprise was there's this uh, new droid called BB-8, which is that little looks like an R2 unit head that has a rolling ball for a body. Mm-hmm. Everybody assumed was CG in the trailers. And there have been some reports that know it was real. And everyone's like, sure, it's real to what degree. They rolled that onto the stage during J.J. Abrams' panel on Thursday, and it was just running around just like you see in the movie, and it really floored the entire place. There was this, you know, this arena of you know, thousands of people just freaking out because that was an actual real thing. It was you know, it's some sort of robotic puppet uh, that they really, really made, and it's a real thing. And that carries along to even the, the new standalone movie. They, uh, they announced uh, Rogue One is a standalone movie that's coming next year that we've known about. They announced some plot details from, uh, yesterday about it. But they were even talking then about how they want that to be the saving cry of Orion of the Star Wars universe. It's all about this emphasis on realism, on practical effects, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of trust, you know, going on uh, that was broken with those uh, prequel films. Um, and that's to the point where one of the most popular costume people I saw during the trip was a guy dressed up as George Lucas holding up the sign that said Jar Jar for life. Uh, and people couldn't get enough of that guy. So that tells you something about the feeling there. Um, we're talking to uh, to Brian Bishop from The Verge, and so uh, we should just mention. I mean, I don't I don't follow this stuff as closely, obviously, as you do. But I, the other thing that kind of leapt out at me as a kind of uh, piece of news is that the Empire, apparently, uh, in Episode Seven, is no longer called the Empire. Uh, it's called the First Order. Um, well, we don't know what it is. That's that's the trick, right? It's not the Rebel Alliance anymore. The X-wing fighters that we've seen are part of something called the Resistance. The Resistance to what we don't know. The stormtroopers that look, you know, they're different. They look familiar to what we've seen before, but they're definitely different. They're part of the First Order. What is that? We don't know. Um, we know that um, John Boyega's character, Finn, he, you know, we've seen him in a stormtrooper outfit in the, you know, in the trailers. He's going to be a stormtrooper at one point. Uh, but, you know, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? 
what goes where, nobody knows yet. So there's a number of ways they could you know, go with that. It could be that, uh, you know, the Rebel Alliance won and then came into power and then absolute power corrupts and they become the bad guys and take on the trappings of the empire. And then there's a new Rebel Alliance called the Resistance uh, or something else completely different yet. We just don't know yet. So a lot of unanswered questions. Um, and I got to say, given how much interest there is in this movie, uh, they've done a really, really good job at keeping it under wraps. There's, you know, the fact that they can, this is six months out, and they're still able to go and, you know, give little, little hit hints here, little, little hints there, uh, is kind of impressive. And it's a lot more fun, I think, for fans and moviegoers in general. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. And if people want to see the actual video of Brian Bishop, senior reporter for The Verge, flying his X-Wing uh, fighter, it's there on The Verge to be seen. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're now actually also going to talk now to uh, Alexandra Petri, uh, who writes for the Compost section of The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that you've been writing about is this whole question of women uh, in uh, in Star Wars uh, and whether or not women have uh, um, a comparable or, or, I mean, I don't know, it's it's similar to the conversation we're having here in America, right? <laughs> are, are, are women in the workforce of Star Wars the same as men in the workforce of Star Wars? So what among the things that you've been able to glean, and as Brian just suggested, we're more in the gleaning business than we are in the knowing business, but, but what of what's coming up either um, impresses you or depresses you? Well, I, I have to say, I was also at Celebration in Anaheim, just as a fan, not even as a uh, reporter, because I'm very excited to see how this plays out. And I think one of the neat things that sort of a suggestion that's been made about Star Wars jokingly once was that it, in space, the reason you've only seen four women total in the entire uh, original trilogy and a few more than that in the saga, once you include like the handmaiden following Padme around, is because in space, you're basically a bee, and so there's this hive theory where, like, there's the queen, and queens are more valuable, and that's why there are, like, hundreds and hundreds of men for every one woman you get in the shot, which is a joke theory, but it also is sort of depressing when you think about it in terms of how accurately it plays out on screen. But one of the things that was most exciting, at least to me, about this trailer is you see what appears to be a female hand taking a lightsaber, which you've seen in uh, certainly material like... Uh, Star Wars Rebels and the Clone Wars, sort of the animated series, you've got sort of female characters who are a big, big part of that. But actually having that in the movie, uh, that's a level up that could be quite exciting. Because you've got Princess Leia, and she's one of the, you know, most kick-butt ladies in the whole galaxy. She can hold her own as a sharpshooter. She can just be verbally on point, scruffy-looking nerf herders right and left. But it's not her story and the chance to have it be actually maybe hopefully conceivably possibly a female protagonist would just be mind-blowing i think well i mean to alexandra to some degree it would seem to me that this franchise is under the under some pressure from things that exist now that didn't exist in 1977 and and maybe didn't even exist for the for the three prequel movies particularly i mean you look at something like game of thrones where there's Arya, there's you know there's the khaleesi uh there's catelyn there's cersei there's incredible incredible array of strong women characters you could make the argument that the women on game of thrones are more interesting really uh than and more promising in lots of ways uh than than the men are so, I mean, you've got a franchise like that. It just doesn't really make sense anymore that you'd, you'd go back to the old Star Wars ratios. 
No, I think it's true. I think, as George R. R. Martin famously said, somebody said, well, why do you write these wonderful women characters? And he said, well, I've always thought that women were people. <laughs> and that, that realization, when you have it, when you're a storyteller, it frees you up considerably in terms of all the stories you can tell and all the ways you can imagine things. But at the same time, I don't think this should scare, you know, the boys wielding lightsabers away from Star Wars. It's still just a fun franchise where you can have a story told and whether you latch onto a character who's female or male, like my favorite character was C-3PO and he's, you know, he's a droid in a committed relationship with another droid. So I don't even know what that <laughs> means in terms of latching on to characters that you identify with. Um, we do know that there's, there is this strong character, apparently Daisy Ridley, right? The, this, um, yeah, Ray, uh, she plays Ray. She's a, a scavenger of some kind, but we do, we don't know. Uh, once again, we're in the gleaning business. We do, I mean, there's sort of a sense that there, there might be once again, kind of a trio of protagonists, Oscar Isaac, Oscar Isaac's playing one role. Uh, yeah, in, he's Finn. <laughs> yeah. And he's sort of the Han Solo of this. And, and so that maybe we'll have sort of a, a similar, and then John Boyega would be the, the third one, right? No, he's Finn. Sorry, I'm embarrassing myself. No, actually not knowing those things would be yeah. <laughs> it's actually sort of good in some ways. Well, let me ask you this because I don't want to run out of time and not get to this. So another thing that we saw, and I know that you've written about it too, is the uh, redesign of the star, uh, Stormtrooper uniform, right? Uh, the poor Stormtroopers, they have to just go through this all the time. They had to. And I feel like there, there's an untold story behind these Stormtroopers where – Every single time you see these guys, and they're in this armor, and they're fighting to the best of their abilities, and their abilities seem very limited in terms of can you see out of the things? Because the amount of shots that they fire and the number of people that they hit, it's just it's embarrassing, frankly. I'm embarrassed for them. And then the armor, you hit one shot on it, you fall over, you, you go collapsing into whatever pit happens to be on hand. And so this new redesign doesn't seem to have addressed any sort of the structural issues, which is you can't see people who are inside. You can't see what's going on outside. The armor seems to be the same. At some point, somebody's got to say, hey, look, we've tried fighting with giant buckets on our head out of which nothing is visible. Maybe we should try, I don't know, another way of shooting at people where we might miss more than – uh, fewer than 100% of the time. Yeah. Well, one thing we know about the Empire, Alexandra, they have no OSHA. Uh, they're not that worried about their workers, I don't think. Alexandra uh, Petri, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think we have to go. But thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. 